being, you know, the eldest son of immigrants. When I got into MIT, it was like, wow, you know, this is making my parents' dream come true. Welcome to the Be Change podcast. We're your hosts, Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. And I'm Warren Goldstein-Gelb. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. So, Warren, you interviewed Penn before you and I were actually working together on this. What made you bring Penn Lowe onto the program? Penn was really a mentor to me. He was executive director at ACE, Alternatives for Community and Environment, and I was the program director there. It's fitting, too, that he's now at uh, Tufts Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning because that's where I got my master's degree. That experience interacting with up-and-coming social change activists was a big inspiration for this podcast. So I'm here today with Penn Lowe, who is a um, lecturer in the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University. And I wanted to start, because you didn't start in that role, you actually started in school as someone who was studying electrical engineering. So how did somebody who was a pre-electrical engineer end up working in, with environmental uh, justice groups and uh, in a department of urban and environmental policy and planning. Well, Warren, it's a pleasure to be here with you on this podcast. Yeah. So for me, my journey started off as being, you know, the eldest son of immigrants who came to this country to, to make a better life and stressed education and purpose was to be able to go get a good, stable job and support a family. Engineering was was seen as kind of the gold standard of doing that. And when I got into MIT, it was like, wow, you know, this is making my parents' dream come true. And, you know, as a naive, I guess I was 17 when I went to college. I had no grand ambitions about what I was going to be doing with my life. I was not groomed to think that I was going to change the world or be some kind of captain of industry or, you know, someone who's going to invent the next light bulb. But I did have kind of this naive impression that engineers bring good things to life. And as you know, that was the slogan of General Electric. So I figured, hey, folks who know how to make things and design technology hopefully can contribute to making life better. But honestly, that was not really something that I had a deep commitment to. It was kind of like I was good at math and science. I got tracked into, you know, the idea that I should be doing engineering, partly because my dad was an engineer. And going to MIT, you know, what else are you supposed to do? (laughs) I guess up until that point was pretty much tracked and opportunities were laid before me to advance within that track. And I had an opportunity to apply for and was accepted into this five-year program where I could get my master's degree 
and my bachelor's in five years. So you were on the fast track towards uh, an a career to becoming in engineering. engineering. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you have to remember, this was the late '80s. This was during the biggest uh, peacetime military buildup under President Reagan. So I got into that program. I was, and to do it, you have to be assigned and matched with a industry partner where you would work in the summers. And in your fifth year, you would spend half your year there and then half back on campus. So it really was a track, right, to pull people into the industry. I got assigned to work with the Draper Laboratories, which were kind of these aeronautical, astronautical laboratories that were actually spun off of MIT. And I got there and discovered basically all their work was applied towards uh, military. You had no inkling of that beforehand. Uh, no, no, not not necessarily. Again, I had no, you know, like I said, I was naive. I didn't. I thought engineers bring good things to life. I get there and found that these engineers were bringing missiles and ever more accurate uh, missiles to life. <laughs> and of course, we were still in the Cold War towards the very end of it. And uh, I remember talking to the guy who headed up the division I was going to be working in, and he was a stalwart believer in detente and the idea that we could only, um, I guess, preserve American freedom by by checking the Soviets and matching, you know, having a better set of armaments. And that that was the way that we were going to, you know, to, to, to preserve what we take for granted in this country. Had you any political consciousness at this point? Or was this the beginning of your political consciousness? So this coincided with the beginning of my political consciousness. And so for me, the personal is political uh, became very evident early on. The spring before I was to start my internship at Draper Laboratories, I took a, a class with Noam Chomsky and uh, Louis Kampf. And I took it because I was told it was an easy humanities class. You know, we were forced to take non-science and math classes at MIT because we were supposed to be better rounded. Um, no, actually, I had a, a classmate who preceded me who encouraged us to take it, but I got into that class. It was 7 to 10 p.m. every Tuesday night, and it was the first class in my then short college career where I did not fall asleep, not even once. Huh. Partly it was the timing, but it was also the subject matter. All they did in this class... Well, Noam Chomsky spent the first several classes kind of laying out his analysis of the U.S. and global politics, and he's kind of a walking encyclopedia, So, and I had no previous knowledge of who he was, but he laid out a pretty compelling case, you know, that the U.S. was complicit in, you know, furthering a lot of the, the issues that uh, seemed to be threatening the world. And then from there on, every week they had someone come in usually someone who is tied to MIT somehow or tied to, to the two instructors. And these people would talk about their lives, kind of like I'm doing now, and say, how did they end up doing what they're doing and what do they do? And they all worked in different social movements. And for us, that was a real inspiration and really opened up the possibilities to show that you can do more than just be an engineer coming out of the school. Huh. Um, so, yeah, so that, that class just blew my mind. And for me, what we were supposed to do in that class was both participate in a particular social movement as our assignment, 
but we were also reading about American democracy and participation. And we were supposed to do reflective journals looking at how we saw ourselves in all of these issues that we were studying. So this all took place before the, the internet, immediately yeah, before. Yeah. My guess is that the questions you were asking at Draper were um, informed by the new political awareness that you had. Absolutely, yeah. So having this opportunity to reflect on what is the role I'm playing and what does it mean to have this kind of training at this elite university and and what am I contributing to as an engineer? That couldn't have been a more powerful moment to reflect than going into this internship. So I went into Draper Labs and I talked to the head of the section because now I was feeling like I had to do something different and not just kind of be swept along this track. So I said to him, you know, I really want to be able to work here on something that's not funded by the Department of Defense. How did that go over? You know, I think he humored me and he was like, okay, you know, um, we'll see what we can do. There's about 10% of our work here that is not funded by the DOD. So I was assigned to a unit that was working on a project called SANE, S-A-N-E. It was Self-Aligned Navigation Engineering or something like that. So it wasn't the SANE, that was the nuclear-free No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It uh, It was a project that was trying to design a missile guidance system that could not be tracked from from the ground. And so therefore, (laughs) it was still a military application, but it was self-funded out of their own R&D funds and not the DOD. So so technically, he assigned me to something that that was not funded by DOD, but was still a military application. Found out later there there were some interesting things going on there, like building a robotic tuna fish and things like that, that that could have been interesting from a technical perspective. But I have to say that experience of being in that research unit and R&D unit, essentially. I did probably the minimum of what I needed to, but most of the days I spent reading the current news, reading books by Noam Chomsky. Um, I did fall asleep sitting on stools in meetings with three people uh, because it was so boring. And and you know, and I have to say the 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 engineers I was working with on a daily basis were guys in their later twenties. And uh, they weren't necessarily really excited about their work either. You know, they were not mission-driven, so to speak. Right. They were just looking for, as you had been, a career. Yeah. They, they, were, they had a job. They were getting married. They were starting to have kids. This was a job. And so that was not a real motivation for me to pursue an engineering track. At the end of that summer, because of being influenced through Noam Chomsky and Louis Kampf and all these other people I was surrounded with in that class who were confronting our own kind of uh, roles in the world, I took a step that I considered my first political act, which was I wrote a five-page letter (laughs) to Draper Labs and to this program that I was in saying that I would quit because there was no way I was going to keep working at Draper for three more summers and then a half year after that. So, so you weren't just quitting the internship, you were quitting the program. Yes, yes, I was. I, I really do wonder what my parents thought at that point, but I had made it to MIT, so it didn't matter so much. So I, I said I quit that program, and from there, because of the circles of students and people I was exposed to, who had all many of whom had come through this class, 
and were engaged in different forms of social justice activism, a lot of it on campus. You can imagine at MIT during this period of time, there was a very strong kind of anti-military establishment movement that I felt an affinity to. So trying to stop war research was the slogan, but a lot of students were working from the inside to try to steer MIT out of being essentially a cog in the military industrial complex. And so what else did you do at MIT that was aligned with your newly formed uh, sense of values? For example, to, to try to stop MIT from being sure. a military machine, uh, part yeah, of the military complex. Yeah, yeah. So, so certainly there was, a, there was a definitely a community of both faculty and, and in some cases staff and students and student groups that were aligned in this way. In fact, the reason why Draper Laboratories was no longer an official part of MIT was because in the 60s, students had protested because not only because were they developing the inertial guidance systems for missiles, but inertial guidance systems for the helicopters in Vietnam that were enabling people to be more accurate in shooting uh, onto the ground. So they were a part of uh, the war effort and, uh, and students protesting that war essentially forced MIT to disconnect that piece of uh, work to an independent body. Yeah, so I, I got involved and got, uh, I guess I would term it, I got sucked in to a bunch of this work. And one of the first things was there were some graduate students who had been doing a lot of organizing among students and because they were there for quite a while. And there was one guy, Rich Cowan, who was an electrical engineering graduate student and part of something called the Alternative News Collective, which was a student-run radical newspaper. And they were focusing on issues like what is going on in terms of war research on campus and how do we expose it? How do we ask the questions about whether this is what we should be doing or not? And as soon as we expressed any interest, all of a sudden, someone like Rich is calling us up like at one in the morning um, on a Friday to Saturday <laughs> and asking us to quick come to the computer lab in such and such a building. It's open and we can use their computers to lay out the, the next issue of, of this newspaper. We thought he was crazy. We're like, we're not doing that. We, <laughs> we're out enjoying ourselves on a weekend night. But gradually, as we continued to participate, it wasn't just Rich. There were a number of other student leaders who, who gradually got us involved and then encouraged us to write stories, to do some investigative journalism and help get the word out. So you had a voice that you were developing uh, to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. and you had some strengths, clearly, in engineering. But how did you identify, I mean, you don't necessarily associate uh, electrical engineers and uh, writing, rightly or wrongly, uh, in, in terms of employ, employing your strengths. How did you find your new set of strengths that were not going to be engineering? I had no idea what my strengths were at that point. Again, given my own upbringing, first generation Asian immigrant family, English and writing were definitely not seen as the most important 
things, even though you still had to get good grades in them. But even the way I was trained, just really never encouraged. To me, English was learning grammar and diagramming sentences and reading really, really boring Victorian English literature or Puritan American literature that had no relevance to our lives. So I hated it. And I had no clue I was had any talent in writing because I never wanted to do it. Given my high school experience, I got to MIT and took as few courses where I had to actually do that. And I wrote some really, really bad essays in some of the English classes that I was forced to take. So yeah, I had no clue. I, but through something that connected very deeply with what I saw as my future, I did feel a strong compulsion to, to shed light on what role MIT actually was playing in the military industrial complex. And it plays a big one, not only through funding, but through the revolving door between people going into government, coming to MIT. You know, we had a chancellor at that time who had headed up the DOD's science committee, for instance. I benefited from having other activists who had already done a lot of the uncovering of this stuff. And then basically they were looking for anyone to get involved and encouraged us to do anything. I think all of us who got involved in that news collective and we tried to run as a consensus-based collective and the group itself had kind of roots in kind of new left student activism. I really cut my teeth and I did find a voice that others found compelling and and I felt it became it, I guess it continues to be a passion of mine to be able to write and communicate and and get through to people. Did you end up graduating with a degree in engineering? I did. I finished my electrical engineering degree because it was essentially too late to start anything else. I decided to pick up a political science minor and also took advantage of a number of classes that helped bolster my growing political awareness. MIT has these mini-term courses that students can sometimes sponsor and uh, I had one that was taught by an economics grad student on alternative economics, which was all about Marxist economics. <laughs> then took one with, as you can imagine, at MIT there were a lot of physicists and others who had been associated with the Manhattan Project, mm. who had then become major peace activists, and a lot of them were still trying to impart, you know, their experience and wisdom upon students. So, you know, some of them taught a class that looked at these issues of politics and science. So we've been talking about MIT yep. uh, and your experience there. The, uh, the change in um, career direction from an academic standpoint mm -hmm. lagged behind your consciousness. So you graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, but then you pursued a degree at Berkeley. Yeah, so so I, I pursued a degree at Berkeley because by the time I finished, I knew I was not going to get an engineering job. The kinds of folks who came to recruit on campus were, were really all the big military contractors, Raytheon and Martin Marietta, GE, you know, all these folks. And that was the easy path to go. I actually did get a job with Oracle, which was, a, you know, at that time, a more startup software company, but I wasn't really passionate about writing code either. So no, I went to a nonprofit job fair. I went to cover that event as part of the student newspaper. 
And at that job fair, I ran into and talked to someone who worked at the TELUS Institute in Boston, which was a nonprofit that did energy and environmental analysis and consulting. And that's how I ended up with my first job. And I discovered that, oh, wow, you actually can get paid and I can pay my rent. And I was in a, you know, at the bottom of the rung of that type of career. And anyone who advanced had to have a master's degree or more. And so I started to investigate master's degree programs and ended up choosing one at UC Berkeley. So I went out there with the intention of beefing up on my environmental kind of science background, which I had zero. So I went back to school to, to, to do that. And I, I show up at UC Berkeley, 1992, and the first week on campus, I see a sign up posted in our department that says, Student of Color Environmental Justice Organization, meeting you know tomorrow night. And looked at my friend and someone who I end up being roommates with, and we looked at each other and said, we got to go check this out. Never heard of this. Environmental justice? What's that? So yeah, we showed up at this thing, and students who had been running this organization had just come back from the 1991 People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in Washington, D.C., which many folks consider to be the kind of the genesis of a national environmental justice movement. And we had someone on campus, Carl Anthony, who was an adjunct, who had started the Urban Habitat Program and been one of the environmental justice leaders at this summit. He was teaching one of the first classes on environmental justice called Race, Poverty, and the Environment. And so I took that. And for me, it was a revelation to find that my social justice commitments could actually be a matched with some of my what I was seeking in professional training through this graduate program. So yeah, so for me, I went to graduate school thinking that this is just going to allow me to get a job that isn't about killing people. And I, while there, <laughs> got introduced to this movement and found that, you know, there were actually ways that I could contribute. And I guess the other big change for me in graduate school was while I did make good on my promise to <laughs> my desire to uh, to get an environmental science background. So I took some pretty heavy-duty science classes my first year. But as a result of being introduced to other students from interdisciplinary backgrounds, I got introduced to the social sciences. And my second year, I ended up taking kind of the graduate sociology, social theory class. It was, it was an eye-opening experience for me to finally see that there's a whole bunch of stuff that isn't science or math in universities that actually was something that I was super interested in and provided kind of frameworks that helped to understand the world and to transform it, which was the point of my social justice activism. How did your background in science and engineering, what role did it play in shaping your both professional goals and talk about how it might have mutated? Had you wasted your time at um Pursuing electrical engineering, or how, how did that become yeah, a I mean, benefit? There was, yeah, yeah, there was definitely aspects of an engineering education, which if I were to go back and do it again, to try and do what I'm doing now, I would never have majored in. But I would say an engineering background gave me what I would consider a basic kind of rigorous framework for analyzing systems. And... Unfortunately, in engineering, it's almost always closed systems. 
So there's always a right answer. You know what the boundaries are and you can make the calculations and it's either right or it's wrong, right? And it either works or it doesn't. And so for me, that was, I think, a very valuable framework. It's kind of like if you become an accountant, right? right? There's your counting stuff. You either count it or it doesn't. And if you don't do it right, you don't get the right answer. And there is a right answer. Right. Um, By the way, yeah. are, there, are there social policy people who continue to think that they're operating in a closed system? <laughs> Absolutely. And, the, and, you know, the engineering kind of what people call the rational model of policymaking or planning, that was a powerful idea that you could apply the same intellectual rigor and frameworks that had worked to develop all these technological innovations that brought us into kind of the modern age. And now all we had to do is apply those same frameworks and principles to the social arena and to government and to policy, and, and we could do it. Of course, it's a fallacy because we don't have either the same amount of information, we don't have the closed systems, and more troubling, people keep changing their minds about what things mean. And meanings, right, are, are key inputs to social policy and analysis. And so you can't treat humans as fixed objects that don't, that, you know, that don't make up their minds about things and, and then change them too. So, but for me, it was a good starting point, right, to have that background. And then, of course, I had to supplement it with all other kinds of frameworks that I got from the social sciences that try to consider more open systems. And Can you talk a little bit more about that hybrid role that you play as a community activist or a community leader uh, on the one hand or and a um, and a university lecturer mm -hmm. um, how how do they inform each other and how how do they benefit the students lives and aspirations one of the tenets of of our work and activism on kind of anti-militarism at MIT was that science is not neutral and you know a lot of scientists have basically you know come to that conclusion and have become political activists. But I think that still guides a lot of what I bring, which is that you, you can have a perspective, you can have a political orientation, you, have, you can have a commitment to different ways of worldviews, but you can still bring a critical consciousness to it. Doesn't mean you know what's right all the time, but you have to have an awareness of where you're starting from and and how that influences what you're trying to do and how you're thinking about it. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. If you like the show, subscribe on whatever podcast player you are listening on and on our website, b-change.net. Please follow us on Facebook and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks to our producer, John Consilio, and to our partners, Somerville Community Media, and Boston Free Radio.